From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. People have to make tough choices in the face of COVID-19. Like one bolder hairstylist, with salons closed, she could make house calls, but that's not social distancing. So she's home with a baby trying to make ends meet. So I called my car loan company and said I may not be able to make the car payment. And they were like, well, the only thing we can do for you is have you refinance your loan. And if not, then we're looking into getting a credit card to pay for our bills. Then an ER doc on the front lines. And churches may be empty, but there are still sermons. A few days ago, someone wondered what message God is sending through the coronavirus. And this question pops across media like a beach ball across a full stadium. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As of this morning, offices in Colorado must be half empty at least. The governor ordered employers in the state to reduce their in-person workforce by 50 percent. Certain critical businesses are exempt, like healthcare, defense, public safety. This is a way to encourage telework and, of course, slow the spread of coronavirus. There are many people who aren't working at all. Either they've lost a job or the governor ordered them to shut down. Think tattoo parlors, nail and hair salons. Even before the mandatory closure, Boulder stylist Rebecca Venturella had decided on her own to cancel her appointments. I read an article on Facebook talking about our impact and just really felt it right in my gut that I needed to do this because I couldn't keep my clients or myself safe in a salon environment. So, yeah. Venturella has a baby at home to think about, too, but that didn't mean it was an easy decision. She's self-employed, rents a booth in a salon. She doesn't qualify for unemployment benefits, and she doesn't want a loan from the Small Business Administration because she already has debt. So she and her husband are scrambling to cut expenses. So I called my car loan company and said I may not be able to make the car payment. And they were like, well, the only thing we can do for you is have you refinance your loan. And if not, then we're looking into getting a credit card to pay for our bills. Venturella says it's tempting to do house calls, but she wants to do her part for social distancing. And that means staying at home. I I nearly had a panic attack just midweek and then realizing it only been two days of quarantine. (laughs) So it's it's a lot of uh, pressure on us as a family because of the mental health aspect of this and um, knowing that now financially there's a burden upon us as well to make smart decisions um, and then be socially responsible as well, you know. One example of the very difficult choices COVID-19 has thrust upon Coloradans. Venturella, by the way, says we're about three weeks from knowing everyone's true hair color. We are telling personal stories of how coronavirus is affecting lives. Tell us about how it's changing yours in big ways or small. Send us a voice memo. News at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. Colorado's emergency rooms are preparing for an onslaught in the next week or so. When my colleague Andrea Dukakis went to a few ERs over the weekend, she described what she saw as the calm before the storm. 
She joins us along with Dr. Ricky Dollywall, an emergency physician with Colorado Permanente Medical Group. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having Andrea, me. Andrea, nice to hear from you. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Dr. Dollywall, you work in several emergency departments around the metro. What has the patient volume been like lately? The patient volume has actually decreased uh, over the last week or so. I think it's, as you said, the calm before the storm. I think people are uh, understanding that the social distancing is important and uh, they are fearful uh, probably of uh, contracting coronavirus when uh, coming to the emergency department. So it's likely that they are delaying care or saying this isn't serious enough given the current circumstances to go into the ED and be exposed potentially to something. Yeah, we're hoping they're not delaying care for serious illnesses, but I think that people are staying away for minor minor ailments that they might have come to the emergency emergency department for before. Have you seen your first case of COVID-19? Yes. Okay. How many cases have you seen thus far? Well, we because of testing, we don't know for sure how many cases we're seeing. And I think that's one of the biggest fears and problems we're having is, is we don't have a, a sure number of the number of cases that are coming through. Is that important to change for healthcare workers? I think for healthcare workers and for our society as a whole, I think the, the numbers are important to help us track the disease and to really understand the prevalence within our community. And for us as healthcare workers, I think it keeps us a little bit on edge because everyone is uh, assumed positive uh, right now. That's what you have to do in, with the lack of information. I think that's the safest thing for us to do as healthcare providers and nurses to, to keep ourselves healthy. Andrea, you visited emergency departments at Memorial North Hospital in Colorado Springs and at Swedish in Englewood, just south of Denver. What did you observe? What did people tell you there? People at both places also said their emergency department visits have been low for this time of year, probably, uh, as Dr. Dollywell said, because people are isolating at home and not coming in uh, unless they're really sick. But doctors think that'll change, and that's why it felt like this calm before a storm. In Colorado Springs, I toured a tent they've set up near the emergency department entrance at Memorial North. It has four exam rooms, and it'll be used to divert people with respiratory issues, so potential COVID-19 cases. And the point is to separate them from other patients coming into the emergency department. Are they seeing patients in those tents now? Not yet at Memorial North. They're waiting until they have more patients to open it. But a similar tent in the area at Memorial Central is uh, already taking patients, and they're seeing about 50 a day. Have you ever practiced medicine in a tent, Dr. Dollywall? I can't say that I have. Not yet. Um, I think this is one of those things where we, with extreme circumstances, we, we must practice with what we have. And uh, as emergency physicians, we're trained to practice in, in whatever environment uh, that, that, that we're in. And I, I think this is uh, telltale to the training that, that we get to, to help us uh, do this. What did you see at Swedish, Andrea, again in Englewood? At Swedish, I toured the emergency department with the medical director, Dr. Dylan Loyton. Uh, like other Colorado hospitals, they've stopped allowing visitors in order to limit the spread of COVID-19. I did use precautions when I went in. Dr. Loyton said not only are their numbers down, but at last count, they're also not yet seeing a lot of patients with the new coronavirus. I think folks may have the impression that the ERs are somehow overwhelmed. And while there are places in the country that are a little ahead of us in terms of their COVID volumes, right now, our volumes are actually quite low. And it's an eerie calm. It's that calm before the storm, Andrea. Uh, Is Dr. Loyton expecting more to come? And if so, when? 
He says he doesn't necessarily expect to see a higher volume of patients, more that they'll see a lot more very sick patients who need acute care and the things you've been hearing about like ventilators. Mathematical modeling from our hospital experts and epidemiologists are predicting that we will begin to see a surge of the critically ill in one to two weeks and that that surge will peak somewhere around late April, but that it will continue out into June or July. We're preparing for the worst, but that's kind of what we're thinking. June or July, Dr. Dollywald, does that match up with what you're expecting? Yes, I think uh, across the board, if you if you map out what's been going on in other states, such as Washington and New York, uh, that that bell curve is uh, is about to hit and it's going to extend out. I think one of the biggest things that we want to let the public understand is that the social distancing piece can help bring that curve, uh, make that curve shorter. Um, although we're a little bit late to the game, unfortunately. You think we're late to the game? I think we we are as a as a country, unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to to mobilize ourselves as quickly as maybe we could have. Um, but at this point, we are we need to do everything we can to ensure we uh, don't make this any worse. So far, the governor, Governor Polis, has not issued a shelter in place order. Do you think he should be? making a different decision? I think that that would be the next step um, to uh, protect uh, the this, this citizens of, this, of the state. Governor Polis has done an amazing job within our state to, to help us combat this. I think he's been very aggressive with ensuring we don't con- continue to spread. Um, you know, for each individual, the uh, ability to spread this on average is about two to four um, per infected person. And so if you extrapolate that out... Meaning uh, two people can... Infect four people? What do you mean? Uh, one person could potentially infect two to four on average. Two to four. Okay, got it. Got uh, it. Versus other illnesses um, that are much less. And so, um, with that being said, these social distancing and keeping uh, public at home is imperative uh, to keep this in check. Would you like to see shelter in place? Um, you know, I think that would definitely help the situation. I want to talk about supplies. We have reported here at CPR and NPR has reported as well about insufficient protective gear, what's known as PPE. Uh, Are you anticipating or have you already seen a shortage of things like masks and gloves in the hospitals where you work? I think we are already seeing this. Um, You know, if you look across the board, uh, the use of surgical masks um, and not N95, which are the, the optimal uh, mass to be used um, is apparent in all emergency departments. I know there's departments in the state that uh, they're being asked to use one mask for the whole shift, which um, these masks are are you know actually to be used for no less than four, uh, no more than four hours. And so uh, these are things that we're all doing: the nurses, the doctors, the techs, um, to protect ourselves, but also to protect patients. Are you amazed by that? That in the United States. One of the wealthiest countries in the world, that that is the reality. You are being asked to use a mask, a shift. I I will say that it's a it's a bit shocking as a as a provider. Um, you know, we always uh, assume that we have everything we we can get everything that we we want and need, and this is a, an example where we just unfortunately weren't ready. We heard from the governor over the weekend that if coronavirus hits Colorado hard, there could be a shortage of as many as 7,000 ventilators. Andrea, what did Dr. Leuten at Swedish say about equipment? 
He says they're trying to conserve things like masks and gloves, but that they've got supplies for the near future. He is very worried about having enough ventilators and ICU rooms. He says they're coordinating with other Health One hospitals across the country and can pull ventilators back from other ERs that are less busy Uh at any given time. Uh, One thing Dr. Leuton is particularly concerned about is healthcare workers getting sick. He says that would probably or would definitely put another huge stress on the system. And you are nodding. Yes, Dr. Dollywell, that's a concern for you. Yeah, I think, you know, there's only so many physicians and healthcare workers out there. And if we lose our workforce, that's the ability to care for patients. We're already seeing physicians, nurses uh, being uh, going down with illnesses. And, you know, we are using uh, high precaution in terms of keeping people out of work if they have any type of respiratory symptoms. And so that could get worse and worse as we progress. Are you constantly taking your temperature? We, before every single shift, we, every person has to have their temperature checked. Um, That is a precaution. You know, we wear masks um, specifically to protect ourselves, but also just in, just in case, you know, we are an asymptomatic carrier. You know, these are things that you can do um, as providers uh, to, to help yourself and, and help your patients. Are you scared? I would say I, I'm a lot more nervous, uh, going into work than I ever have been. I think part of it is uh, not uh, fearful of myself, but of my family. Um, bringing this home is something that is mm. uh, is definitely a scary thing with a three-month-old three and a two-and-a-half-year-old um, and uh, two parents who are over the age of 65. Um, these are all people that I could put at risk. And going into work, um, myself as an emergency doc, my wife as a pediatric intensive care unit doc, um, we think about this and we talk about this every day. Are you kind of sequestering in your own home or is it just impossible to think about stopping the spread once you walk past the threshold? Well, I do things to decrease the risk. So I strip down, but before I walk into my house, leave my shoes outside, go straight to the shower. Um, but with two physicians in the household, um, it's impossible for us to be able to sequester ourselves from our, our, ourselves and, and our children. Andrea, you asked Dr. Loyton how he views the coming challenge. What did he say? Well, he predicts major stresses on the healthcare system. He also has deep economic worries with friends and families in the restaurant business, and that's scary to him too. On the other hand, he doesn't see the apocalyptic scenarios some people are talking about. Can we know what's going to happen? Of course we can. Can we account for every possibility? We can't, but we're going to get through this. You know, we have a a vast pool of talent and resources and dedicated people. And one of the silver linings of this is I feel truly inspired, to be honest, right now. While I'm stressed and underslept and somewhat anxious, uh, at the same time, I know that I'll look back and talk to my kids, maybe my grandkids someday, and we'll look back at this as the great test, you know, of our generation. Hmm. And, and I'm planning to head back to Swedish later this week to think to see if things have changed at all. And I also hope to check back in with Dr. Dollywall. Indeed. And the greatest test of our generation. Does it feel like that to you, doctor? I, I think it does. I think, you know, when we look back in a year from now, I am hoping that we say we overreacted because that will tell us that we did the right thing. And I think hospitals, physicians, uh, and healthcare organizations are are banding together to ensure that we give the best care to our patients and our population. And, uh, and that's my hope. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. 
Thank you. Dr. Ricky Dollywall, emergency physician with Colorado Permanente Medical Group. He's also on the board of the Colorado chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And we were joined by CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Her Sunday sermon was ready and recorded way ahead of time. That's because it had to be shipped off to churchgoers who weren't going to sit in the pews. And here's some of what Pastor Caitlin Trussell told her flock from Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver. A few days ago, someone wondered what message God is sending through the coronavirus. And this question pops across media like a beach ball across a full stadium. But similar to the disciples in today's story, it's the wrong question. Jesus goes on to remind them and us that each moment is an opportunity for God's works to be revealed. It's about God drawing people back into relationship with each other, like the man to his community, and back into relationship with God. It's not difficult. But, oh, we make it so hard. We're the ones who want people to get what we think they deserve. We're the ones who aren't loving our enemies and praying for them. I've seen tweets wishing coronavirus on people who have dropped the policy ball. Enough already. Speak truth to power. Work the policy arena. Love your neighbor and love your enemy as you pray for them. Pastor Caitlin Trussell there. Before she became a preacher, she was a registered nurse for 16 years, specializing in pediatric oncology, kids with cancer. She's used to the question, what's God's intention here? And she joins us for the first of what will be occasional conversations about COVID-19 with faith leaders. And Pastor, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. I understand that you delivered that sermon earlier this week to empty, last week, I guess at this point, to empty pews so that it could be recorded, sent out for Sunday. How was that experience? It was not a good experience. (laughs) I miss my people very much. Um... I, uh, you know, we had talked about where to do that. Did we, should we sit in our lounge chairs, lounge chairs at home? Should we, should we be in the sanctuary? And um, Pastor Ann, my colleague and I talked about, you know, let's, let's be in the place where people are used to hearing from us. And uh, because it was recorded on video, they could watch it and, and have a sense of connection to something that is normal in this really abnormal time. So there you are in front of the camera, but empty pews. Yes. And I imagine that part of what it is to deliver a sermon is to react and respond to the audience that was gone. Very much so, yeah. Um, Looking into that camera and imagining folks either on Facebook or website or wherever um, engaging with that on Sunday morning or sitting with family um, was was key for me to think about um, that relationship, even though my my folks weren't there. How does your healthcare past inform your view of God? Oh, I think... um, 
I think God brings healing through the hands of the folks you just talked to, right? These physicians and nurses and um, people who are trained to know and understand the fragility of our bodies and the artistry that it takes to heal along with the science that we know. Um, so so there's, there's a kind of a weaving together, I think, of of who people are gifted to be in the world and mm. how God interacts with that. How similar is nursing and ministry? Oh gosh. You've lived in both. Yeah. Um my 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 brother Kevin, when I first called to tell my family I was um gonna do this crazy thing and become a pastor, um <laughs> my brother Kevin said, Oh, well, I can see the similarities on 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 the nursing side, you're dispensing um healing and on the pastor side you're dispensing faith and i don't think i would totally align with that word of you know dispensing but i <laughs> but i think the i think that's right i think there there's a there's a deep connection with people's souls and bodies and and what i did as a nurse and what i do as a pastor shares a lot of common ground there have been calls for retired healthcare workers to return to that field mm-hmm. have you considered it i've th- uh, you know it's <laughs> It's funny I haven't talked out loud about that. That's a great question. I have thought about what what tiered level, like what tier or ripple effect would would um, urge me back into that work. How um, bad would it have to get before you returned? In other words, well, yeah. you know, I'm not a I'm not a practicing RN. I have a license, and um, if I were ever to return to work in a normal time, I would need to really dust off the old nursing chops, you mm. know, and. Uh, so, so I would say it's a possibility, but it's not a probability. I think I would kind of, you know, there'd be more havoc than healing, but we'll see. <laughs> it occurs to me that viruses, if you believe in God, are also God's creation. They are part of God's creation, yes. Um, Grapple with that for me. Oh, my gosh. That is a tough one. I, You know, the world, um, in, in the tradition um, in which I um, do my work and find my faith and find my strength, um, we talk about the world as broken, that there's a brokenness to uh, how things function um, in the same way that there's an incredible beauty and a nurturing uh, so this brokenness of the world means that there are things that hurt and there's suffering that happens. Um, I don't think any theologian or person of faith has been able to reconcile uh, a loving God with human suffering. Um, I, and in our tradition, um, don't have the experience of God inflicting or smiting us, um, but it is part of how we move through the world. We have things that hurt us. I'm I'm so glad that you said that, that it's tough, if impossible, to reconcile God's love with human suffering. You know, I, I certainly wanted to bring you into the studio and have that answered once and for all, but I appreciate, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate so much that you struggle with that too. Let's pick this discussion up after a break with past, Pastor Caitlin Trussell from Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News and KRCC Colorado Springs are committed to bringing you accurate, actionable, and current information on the spread of the coronavirus in Colorado. 
Find answers to frequently asked questions in English and Spanish at CPR.org. Encuentre una lista actualizada y en español de respuestas sobre el coronavirus en Colorado en CPR.org. COVID-19 can feel positively existential, and it's why, uh, through the course of this, we want to have some existential discussions. We're bringing in, from time to time, faith leaders to talk to us about this moment. Uh, this time, it's Caitlin Trussell, pastor at Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver. And um, there's more you wanted to say, I understand, about God in the midst of suffering. Right, because the question of God smiting us with suffering is absolutely unanswerable in some ways. And uh, scripture, as my sermon on Sunday addressed, um, is there's a lot of evidence that God doesn't do that. But the, in the Bible, there's a lot of sort of in, inter, intra-Bible disagreement about the the cause of suffering. But the, the, the way that I prefer to think about it is that God is with us in our suffering. That um, at least in my tradition, if the if the cross means anything, it's the presence of God suffering with us, and um, when we suffer, so that um, we can see that that there's no hand raised in violence against the ones who wanted to hang Jesus on the cross. Uh, the ultimate uh, sort of experience on that cross or, or message of that cross is there is suffering. God saying, I will not raise a hand in violence. Does that make isolation for you less isolating? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan, but there's a scene that keeps popping to mind from the Simpsons movie. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, it's when the town of Springfield is about to be sealed off from the west rest of the world by a gl- giant glass dome. It uh, kind of feels like life now, isolating. Anywho, uh, everyone in the bar runs to the church for solace, and everyone in the church runs into the bar for comfort. And um, <laughs> it, it seems like existential crises are the times people either find religion or quit it. Do do you think that's true? And do you expect that? Oh, yeah, I think that's true. I I think there's all kinds of reasons why people look to faith um, and look to um, reassurance uh, of what uh, divine... divineness might be doing, right? And so... Um, but it's the other way around, too. You bet. I mean, I think there are there are moments when you think, well, if there was a loving God, this couldn't happen. Well, sure. I mean, I was, I was raised in a tradition where God was a very punitive God, and... You, you uh, had a Catholic upbringing, right? And then you came oh, to very, the Lutheran... Oh, very, very early on, but I was, I was more raised in the tradition of my um, stepfather, Pops, uh, and uh, whom I adore and love and who is no longer with us. Um, and what tradition was that? Uh, that was Church of Christ. Okay. And, um, and I just, I ended up in that tradition feeling as though I just simply could not make God happy. And, uh, and if I was going to be punished, uh, why hang out with him? <laughs> so, um, so interestingly enough, in this, in this, you know, in that, you know, 10 years of being out of church, um, uh, I married a Lutheran. I had some babies who are now uh, 20 and 22 years old. And, um, and I started hearing about grace 
and that first and foremost, this message of uh, Christian scripture is that God meets us absolutely in our darkest, messiest, cruddiest moment. And I would say in this time in our corona-filled moment, right, that there's um, this this virus that is uh, wrecking havoc and um, and that in our fear and bad behavior and all that good stuff, um, that is exactly where God is meeting us. It also occurs to me that though churches can't gather for prayer, you know, in a mm-hmm. sanctuary, there are a lot of churches that are stepping up to the plate and offering various kinds of charity. I just got a press release this morning about six churches in Northeast Denver that have formed a group called Love Northeast Denver, mm. and they're doing outreach to seniors and um, helping struggling families. Oh, that is so awesome. To what yeah. extent is it incumbent upon churches that are now not places of worship, that can't be for a while, to get outside of sanctuaries and to do that kind of work? Well, I think churches are both and. We 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 get together to remind ourselves that uh, God loves us and we find strength in that and reassurance in that. And we are always supposed to be out there. Uh, we... Uh, I think that's incredible. I hadn't heard that, um, but I think that's wonderful. I met with a few folks yesterday from our congregation who are the leaders of our Compassion in Action with our neighbor ministry. And uh, I mean, I think all of us need to be thinking outside of ourselves to to the very people who are struggling the most. What are you hearing from members of your flock? What questions do they have? What struggles are they having? Uh. Boy, there's just across the board. I mean, we we all have the chapped hands from this virus, right? We're all trying to figure out um, whose fault it is, uh, who, uh, what we're supposed to do now. I mean, I've gotten emails from people making homemade masks, um, from people who want to take food to their um, to the older folks in the congregation, um, to people really, really struggling with feeling let down by public leadership um, and uh, wondering what's next and who can I trust and and can I can I trust God? I'm, it's, it's remarkable to me, both on media and in personal email and phone communications, uh, it's this, it is the whole gamut of, mm. the, of the human struggle right in this moment. Are you expecting members of Augustana Lutheran Church to have lost jobs or at least lost work? Oh, they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, uh, we run the full spectrum uh, in our congregation from... Um, People living day to day to people who can give a lot all at once, and um, and and people are people in the congregation are struggling. How different is your message to members of the church uh, from the message uh, that you share with your own kids right now? You mentioned you're a mom. Well, I'm pretty consistent. <laughs> my, my son, who's just about to turn 23, will say, oh, mom, you're so predictable, um, which I take as both a compliment and a blow simultaneously. <laughs> um, but it's true. I mean, I, I have I've had the luxury of being able to do a lot of thinking about this. I've lost two fathers and uh, now call uh, my mother's husband just a dear friend. And... Um, so uh, I've had to come to terms with a lot of struggle, and the the church has helped me do that. Mm. And it's partly 
what led me into pastoring was to help other people understand uh, these really fragile moments and imperfect faith. Leave us with what your prayers sound like. Would you mind sharing those? My prayers are for continued strength to draw us outside of our own fear. Um, I think we're all so afraid, and it's in our fear that we act our worst. So I hope that people feel love and feel hope, and I pray that for people and that people can connect to others um, when, uh, when we're all taking turns freaking out, that there may be moments when you might lift somebody up in the same way in the next moment that somebody else might need to lift you up. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Nurse turned Pastor Caitlin Trussell of Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver. This is the first of occasional conversations we'll have with Colorado faith leaders as humanity faces COVID-19. An excerpt now of Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Hosts Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, and Caitlin Kim examine the governor's emergency powers and the impact coronavirus has on the state legislature. Benta is up first. We've seen in Colorado just a huge shift in the last few weeks that it's head spinning. Governor Jared Polis has shut down the ski industry, mm-hmm. bars, restaurants gyms, movie theaters, schools. And so governors throughout the country are making these decisions in the middle of this public health crisis. And, you know, normally when people are getting ready to vote for a position like governor, we tell them, oh, the the governor is not going to have so much direct power. He's shaping legislation and policy. Sometimes, though, the governor can do a lot of things very directly. Exactly. Um, President Trump might disagree with this, but I do think that it's been the states that have really been leading when it comes to trying to stop the spread of the coronavirus um, and, and you know making these decisions on a state level that now the federal government is kind of playing catch up, um, whether it be paid leave or waiving the testing costs or, you know, trying to keep people socially distant from one another. I mean, states have been moving on this faster, I think, than than the federal government has been. That's right. And Colorado in particular is probably going to be seen as one of the more aggressive movers on this. Uh, they were in the first real set of, of states to close down the restaurants, for example. And now something close to 20 have done that. But Polis was right in there with the first dozen or so. Governor Jared Polis is taking the position of trying to be as transparent as possible and having a lot of press conferences answering as many questions as as possible. It is such a change in the state. I mean, just a few weeks ago, it was life as normal. The Colorado legislature was in session. Children are going to school. People are going to restaurants. And so he's, he's aware of how quickly there's been this radical shift. And he's really talking to folks about, we're in this together, this message of unity, following the science, and urging people to just take some personal responsibility. There's not really ability to police if you're stupid and you have 30 or 40 or 80 people at your home. I mean, maybe the neighbors will complain and maybe the police will come out, but please don't be stupid. Engage in social distancing. The new guidance is no more than 10 and up. 
It's not something you're trying to get away with. What you're doing is you're jeopardizing the lives of your friends and their families. It's going to be really important for Polis to see how this plays out, to see whether people really get on board with him, seeing this as this communal action. And so far, the reaction's been pretty favorable for Polis. His former rival, Walker Stapleton, who ran against him in the race for governor, was praising him. Mm -hmm. We're hearing a lot of messages of bipartisanship, at least for now. The real question is, how long is that going to last, especially now that the real economic pain is hitting? I think that's right. Yes. And I, I think that's the concern for a lot of the Colorado delegation, congressional delegation as well. I mean, you have seen both sides of the aisle sort of support the governor's message, the CDC message about limiting interactions, limiting group activities, you know, really trying to protect people. I think if there is one kind of outlier, it's been U.S. Representative Ken Buck, who is also the state uh, Republican chair. And he's been one of the highest profile figures to criticize, you know, all this what he called sort of craziness to close restaurants and movie theaters and, and, you know, gyms, you know, that infringes on people's personal liberties. Um, I don't know if we'll see more of that in Congress, but just given the, the, the economic fallout from all of this, I know Congress Mm. has mainly been focused on that. And I think time will tell what the political fallout is. Did the state do enough at the right time? Were things shut down too soon or or too late? It's this balancing act of trying to make it as effective as possible. Governor Polis has said, look, you can't shut everything down forever. So when is the most effective time to do that? Well, it's all about also just flattening the curve, right? They just want to be able to flatten, close everything to flatten the curve. That's right. One interesting way I saw people were thinking about this, though, was this, they called it the paradox of preparedness, which is that if this really works, and that if we do avoid the worst results that we're seeing in Italy, if we're seeing, if we avoid overloaded hospitals and triage choices by doctors, if none of that happens, then will people realize that social distancing was the reason for it? Or are they going to think that this was an overblown reaction? Hmm. Good question. This state is suddenly in economic chaos. We're looking at a billion dollars cut from projections for government revenue over the next 16 months or so. We've got tens of thousands filing for unemployment, 10,000 in a single day. This is really staggering. And I think it's changing how Democrats are approaching what they want to accomplish Mm. policy-wise. We have Democrats in charge of the House and the Senate and the governor's office. Big proposals like a public option for health care and any other measure that has a fiscal note and requires state spending. Members of the Budget Committee and the Speaker of the House said that's going to have to take a backseat because we're going to have completely different priorities one thing Democrats did want to move forward is paid family leave. And they hmm. I think that's one that could still potentially happen. Uh, but because of coronavirus, folks are saying, look, this proves why we need to increase the number of people who have access to paid family leave. So we are waiting to find out exactly how the rest of the, the session here in Colorado is going to play out. And really, if there's going to be a rest of the session, when are they going to come back, these Colorado state lawmakers? And how long will they actually have left to finish their business? You know, putting aside even the question, how are they going to pay for stuff? How are they going to make the time to get into the building and vote on laws? The state constitution says the session should end on May 6th. And then we're under the state of emergency. So there's a question about whether session can be extended past that date. Lawmakers have asked the Colorado Supreme Court to weigh in. And this will have big implications on how much time they have to finish their work. Mm -hmm. Lawmakers are scheduled to come back to the Capitol on March 30th. 
and will likely vote on whether to take a, an even longer break. Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kim from the latest episode of Purplish, that's CPR's politics podcast. Catch new episodes every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Social distancing can be hard, so one idea to cope with all this time at home? Adopt a pet. My colleague Avery Lill visited Denver Dumb Friends League last week. Oh, hi, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. You want to Let's just say that it ended up being a fruitful visit. Avery is in our studio now with a special guest. Who do we have here, Avery Lil? We've got Flossie. She's some kind of a schnauzer mix. I don't know what else she is, but so far she just naps around my entire apartment. She's a good sleeper. She sleeps Flossie is. very well. The point is you adopted a dog. I did. And uh, that was on Friday. Why did you decide to do that now? You know, I've been wanting to adopt a dog for a while, but when you bring a new dog into your house, it's usually good to have some days at home to get to know it and for it to get to know you. And I'm busy a lot of the time. I'm at work or I'm traveling. And now that I find myself social distancing and with a lot of time in my apartment by myself, this seemed like the right time. I can identify. Over the weekend, I connected with a foster organization called Res Dog Rescue, and I adopted a two-and-a-half-year-old tuxedo cat named Bob. Oh, I love that. So I gather we're not alone in adopting pets during this period of social distancing. Is that what you found? No, we are not alone at all. Maya Brousseau is the spokesperson for Denver Dumb Friends League, and she actually said they're seeing a lot of interest in adoption right now. The demand for adoptions has been pretty high. A lot of people know that they're going to be home for the foreseeable future, so they know this is a great time to bring a new pet home. You know, it's a good time to get them settled in your home. You can work on some training, you know, potty training, especially if you have a puppy or anything like that. And it's just a great opportunity to really get to know your pet. So a lot of people are excited about that. I know our adoptions team said they had people come in who specifically said they were there to adopt because they knew that this was a really good time based on the fact that they had more time to acclimate a pet to their home. They and a few other shelters in Colorado have actually moved to an appointment-only adoption system, Uh and that's so that they can make sure everybody in the building maintains appropriate physical distance to limit the spread of COVID-19. And the Dumb Friends League's appointments through the end of April, they're almost entirely booked. Um, And they may also be seeing this increase in people wanting to adopt from them because quite a few shelters around the state have actually suspended adoptions. And this includes the city-owned Denver Animal Shelter, the Longmont Humane Society, the Foothills Animal Shelter in Golden. But that's not necessarily true across the state that more people are looking to adopt. The Humane Society Pikes Peak region in Pueblo says it's seeing a decrease in adoptions, but it still has pets entering its care every day. Yeah, that's really the other side of the coin here. Let's talk about people giving up their pets to shelters. I imagine at a time like this, full of instability for people economically, uh, it's probably unstable for pets as well. Yeah, I actually asked Brousseau about that in whether what more people are coming to them needing to surrender their pets. We are seeing a higher demand in that need right now because there are some shelters that have had to make the, make the difficult decision to close during this time and not offer that service. So we're happy we're still able to provide that service, but we are seeing a higher demand. We are asking people that if they do need to surrender a pet, 
but it's not an emergency. It's not a medical emergency or an eviction type of situation that they try to hold off on surrendering if they can. You know, obviously, if they need to, we're going to be there for them. But if they can wait until the situation has lessened, then maybe we will um, have more capacity to be able to help. And that request to not surrender pets right now, unless it's an emergency, is something that a lot of shelters around the state echoed. Mm. And the State Department of Agriculture says that it's seen an increase in the number of pets being given up to shelters because of COVID-19. And also there's a shortage of facility staff to care for the animals. So it announced Saturday that it passed a temporary emergency rule that makes it easier to foster animals. Normally a shelter would have to conduct a home inspection before approving someone to foster a pet. They're waiving that rule for 120 days. that reduces the demand on the shelter because you can have pets placed in people's homes, even if it's just temporary. That's the goal. Okay. How can folks help animal shelters right now, Avery? What did you hear? I mean, fostering, I suppose, is one way. Right. And it depends on the shelter. Um, Some certainly are looking for people to foster pets. The Humane Society of Pikes Peak Region and Max Fund in Denver are among those. There are others like Denver Dumb Friends League and Foothills Animal Shelter that say they've actually got enough foster families and that donations are really best. Flossie. You haven't... Flossie hasn't barked once. She's so quiet. She just loves a nap. People aren't even going to believe she's in our studio. (laughs) But you have tweeted a photo of Flossie at Avery Lil, so we can prove that she was here. Uh, Also, you can follow Bob, my cat, on Instagram. I had a little time over the weekend. Uh, The Instagram account is the palindrome cat. The palindrome cat. That's sweet. Because his name is Bob. What's your favorite thing about Flossie? Oh, she does this thing where she needs to roll over her back and needs belly scratches before she eats her food. Like I feed her and then she comes over to me and lets me rub her belly and then she goes and eats her. And then she goes and eats. Bob, not a fan of belly rubbing unless he says it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. That's my colleague Avery Lil and her new pup. We we promise Flossie. Uh, Indeed, Avery just tweeted a photo at Avery Lil. Let's take a break now from coronavirus to answer a Colorado Wonders question that has nothing to do with pandemics. Why is there a designated bike route along Pena Boulevard to Denver International Airport? CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner explains. Steve Lunt sounds like a cautious kind of guy. Like many cyclists, he says he always takes side streets and paths on his commute from North Denver to Commerce City. So he always thought it was strange that one of Denver's designated bike routes was on a busy highway. Why is there a bike lane on the shoulder of Penny Boulevard after DIA and, and does anybody use it? And he asked us through Colorado Wonders to find the answers. So let's go back to the mid-1990s. DIA was a $5 billion mega project. Early in 1995, it was just opening up, some 25 miles northeast of downtown, surrounded by farm fields. From any direction, your exit will be Pena Boulevard. Once on Pena Boulevard, you still have 10 miles to go before you get to the That highway was the only way to get there. Originally, there was supposed to be a bike path separated from Pena, but it was cut from the budget. Martha Ryskowski ran the advocacy group Bicycle Colorado back then, and she says they eventually convinced the city and DIA to allow bicycles on Pena's shoulders. I mean, we knew very well that it was likely not to get much use, but the idea of building this lovely new airport and then just having zero opportunity for anybody to ride a bike there didn't seem right either. 
So in the summer of 2000, signs were added and new lines painted. But it's still a harrowing journey, considering cars fly by doing 65 miles per hour or more. And that leads us to Steve Lunt's second question. Does anyone use it? DIA and the city of Denver didn't get back to us in time for this story, which, considering the state of the world, is understandable. Still, it's clear that Pena is not a popular bike route. On cycling apps like Strava that show where people ride their bikes, Pena Boulevard doesn't make a blip. But that doesn't mean no one's done it. At the time, it was kind of like a personal project of mine to bike all of the designated bike routes in the city. This is Chris Brown. Back in 2009, he was a 20-something looking to explore his new city. And since Pena was a bike route, it was on his list. So on a sunny September day, he hitched a ride out to the airport with his partner. So I packed my bicycle in the back of our Subaru, and we drove out there. They said goodbye, and Brown started pedaling his vintage blue Schwinn back east toward Denver. He says it was mostly okay to start out with. And then the car started whizzing by. Every time a car went by, there was uh, a large gust of wind that, even though the shoulder was really wide, um, it would it would hit me on my bike and would just give me the wobbles. It would like knock me off balance a little bit. So that didn't feel good. Then he got to the exit and entrance ramps. They're really wide. And Brown couldn't tell when drivers were going to take them. So he had to stand there and wait for a big gap in traffic before he could zip across. Brown says it took him 30 or 40 minutes to get through Pena. After that, once I got off Pena, like the rest of the trip wasn't frightening. <laughs> I was no longer white knuckling my handlebars. That was more than 10 years ago. Brown says he hasn't done it since then, doesn't plan to do it again. Martha Ruskowski, the bicycle advocate, says she had hoped the city would eventually put in a better path. The airport recommends people use parallel roads like 56th Avenue, but Ruskowski says none of those options are good, including the one she fought for. Reality is, you know, getting to DIA, there's neither a route that feels safe, nor is there a route that is safe. Our question asker Steve Lunt says he's heard enough to make up his mind. Biking out there doesn't make sense. He's thought about taking a bike vacation where he'd ride to the airport, go on a trip, and then bike home. But if he really wants to do that someday, he says there's a better option now. He'll just bike to an RTD A-line stop and take the train out to DIA instead. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. At CPR News, our job is to keep you up to date with the latest, but it's also to tell the stories, the experiences of Coloradans. So let us know how COVID-19 is changing your lives in big or small ways. Email us a voice memo, news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.